I want to start this morning with sort of getting a picture in your mind. I want you to sort of transform uh, where we are, this building. It's a, um, it's a fancy banquet hall. And we are sitting at round tables dressed in our tuxedos and fancy dresses and glittering jewelry. And it's a really fancy special event in a plush hotel. And up on the up in the front on the platform is a long line of tables and all the executives dressed to the nines of your company, your corporation that you have worked for for years. Every member of the business, every participant, every worker from the very bottom to the very top is present. It's a celebration. We are celebrating the retirement of our glorious leader, our, the founder of the company, we love this man. He has built a company. He has invested of decades of his blood, sweat, and tears to pass on a, a vision uh, through values. And he has, he has preached that sermon again and again. We feel like we're part of a family. We love working here. We love this man. And we are sold out for our company. And we are celebrating him. He's retiring. And he's passing the reins to his successor. He is walking away. Now he was asked to speak a little bit and he stepped up to the lectern and he doesn't like to be in the spotlight. But he said a few words, very brief, and he steps away and there's light applause, but that's not good enough. And the, the applause gets louder. People are standing on their feet and they're just sort of embracing this man by just applauding and applauding. It's a standing ovation. He doesn't like it. He's unassuming. But he feels good in this moment because he has invested his life. He's done well with the gifts that God has given him. He's done well. He's, he, he feels good, satisfied as a man might be at the end of his career. And, but there's something weighing on his mind. It's very natural. If you are handing the reins to your baby, to someone else, isn't it natural that there would be some sort of apprehension, just even if you don't tell anyone? And you probably don't, except the one taking your place. Isn't it natural that there's a little bit of fear? What do you think that would be? Will he take care of my baby? Will he keep on keeping on? Will he continue to, to invest these values with his own blood, sweat, and tears and give everything he's got to continuing the cause, the values of this business? That's very natural. There's a little bit of fear there. There have been lots of companies. When I was a kid, uh, there were lots of household words or companies that were household words that when the reins were passed, the corporation began a decline that it never and it never recovered. Lots of them. And they went bankrupt or they were forced into mergers just to survive. And it's because the next generation really didn't have it in their heart. 
they really had not bought all in. It was just a great place to work. They were trying to be, but the values were really not deep-seated or rooted in. That's happened many times. I think leaders of movements as well go through the same thing. When it's time for them to pass the baton, there's that fear. There's that worry. There's that concern. Can they carry on? Will they hold the line? The hard-fought line. It's, it's very natural. I, I remember the story is told when Benjamin Franklin came out of the closed door of the session of the First Continental Congress, 1789, I believe, and they rushed up to him. Someone rushed up to him with an, uh, uh, an urgent question. Mr. Franklin, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government do we have? And Benjamin Franklin, in his own unvarnished candor, said, we have a republic, if we can keep it. He understood that liberty has to be preserved every day, every election, every generation, or you'll lose it. The statism, that's just the way it is. A free republic is fragile, powerful, but fragile in that way. It has to be guarded. The work of the kingdom is the same in a lot of ways. The cause has to be bought into by the next generation or it'll decline and get far afield. I say all this because this is the, the environment, the context for 2 Timothy. Paul is passing the baton. This is the last thing he'll ever write. This is his son in the faith, his primary, his number one. And he's putting him in the most significant church that he established, the church at Ephesus, a mother church to multiple churches, a leader church. He had warned the elders in Acts 20 that difficult days are going to come. And he's concerned for Timothy. I think there is, if you look at it carefully, there's an undercurrent of a concern for Timothy. Will he carry on? There's a little bit of apprehension from leader, this leader, Paul. You can glance over chapter 1, verse 7, and you'll see that Paul brings up the idea of fear. Paul, I see, uh, Timothy, I see that fear in you. That's not from God. There's some bashfulness in you, Timothy. That's not from God. God gives power and love and a sound mind, not fear. Put that away. There's a little bit of concern. Is Timothy going to carry on? It's just natural. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Don't be ashamed. Just because I'm in prison doesn't mean something bad has gone on. Just because you get pushed back doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. That's a good check. Ask yourself the question, am I doing something wrong? But the gospel is going to get pushback. Living for Christ in this world, these difficult days that we're going to look at in just a minute, there's pushback. Don't be embarrassed, Timothy. Don't back up and soften who you are and what you are and your testimony just because I'm in jail. This word ashamed is sprinkled four, five, six times in this letter alone, this last one. 
Paul is concerned. He repeats things he's already taught. Verse 13 of chapter 1, retain the standard. He's already said that. Timothy's heard that every day of his life. But in the end here, he's handing the, the reins to Timothy. Put the, Timothy, let's go over it again. Square one. Put the fear away. Do not be ashamed and back off and sort of become a chameleon and blend in with the culture. Don't do that. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard, look at the next verse. Guard, verse 14, through the Holy Spirit, the treasure. The treasure. And we're going to talk about rallying around the treasure this morning. And that is the Bible. Our belief in the Bible. Guard the treasure that is in you. Make sure, chapter 2, verse 2, that you find someone like I found you, find someone to invest in, multiple men, invest in them, and have them invest in others and others. And it's a generational thing we're starting here, Timothy. You see? He's going back to the basics. He wants to make sure he's handing the reins off to Timothy. I think, um, I think Paul naturally and anybody walking away from their pet project of 40, 50 years, I think anyone would need some encouragement, don't you think? I think saying this again is Paul's hidden way of saying, I need some, I think Paul needs a hug. <laughs> I think he needs an embrace man to man. Timothy, do you got it? I'm moving on. I'm going to die. I'm gone. We're all going to die, all the apostles. You guys got to carry on without us. And you got to be as strong as we have been. And I think Paul, I think Paul, with my imagination, if I let it run away with me, I think he would enjoy handing this letter to Timothy himself and watching him read it for the first time. And I think he would get, become greatly encouraged, he would get that encouragement that he wants by watching Timothy read it and just sort of nod as he's reading. And I think Paul would be looking at him and trying to read his eyes is he ready? Is it time? I think he would be encouraged to see Timothy just give a thumbs up as he's reading. I got this, Paul. That, that, that timid young pastor of, of when you first met me, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm past that. I'm not embarrassed. I understand. And we'll look at verse 10, or chapter 3, where he's been through uh, persecution himself. He did muscle up finally. And I think Paul would be greatly encouraged to be able to watch him read it for the first time and affirm with a nod and give a thumbs up. And I think he'd... Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians about the power of encouragement. That's kind of a mushy word, you know. It doesn't kind of have the man part of, you know, the, 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 the zeal of manliness in it but because we kind of use it in a fluffy way these days. But this is, the, is a powerful force in the life of a church. One Christian to another to infuse courage to your brother or your sister. And Paul says this is a powerful force. A powerful force. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, the context is he's been uh, persecuted and imprisoned and he's worried that the Thessalonians and, and Thessalonica are going to lose their zeal and their, and their, and their courage. 
to stay true in their affirmation of the Bible and biblical ministry and biblical living and the gospel itself. And he's waiting for Timothy to come back and give him word. Are they okay? Are they okay? Are they getting along? Are they, are they sort of shipwrecked because I'm in jail? And Timothy comes back and tells him, no, they are on fire for God all the more. And Paul is so relieved, and he's talking about this phenomenon of encouragement. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, For now we really, listen, for now we, his, his uh, missionary entourage, maybe the apostle, okay? Now we really live, we really live. If you stand firm in the Lord. If we know you are standing firm, we are infused with courage. This is Paul talking. He needs this encouragement. Now, folks, I believe that there is, this is multi-generational. Chapter 2, verse 2. This is multi-generational. This, these reins are being handed off, not just to Timothy and his protege, but generationally this thing is being handed off. This gospel ministry, this great commission with the Bible as the sword of the Spirit, this is being handed off. And so I think there's an opportunity in our day for churches to encourage, to infuse courage to one another, to, to nod and affirm. Even this morning as we read this pillar passage of our faith, the inspiration of the Bible there's an opportunity for us to encourage one another to be nodding as we read, to be affirming, and to look around the room and see your neighbor, your Sunday school class members nodding their head and saying yes, and giving the thumbs up as we go along. Listen, this is a day when those who sometimes show up as spokesmen for the body of Christ in public are not doing a very good job speaking for us. You understand what I'm saying? Voices that are supposed to be representing us and I hear it and I go, I don't believe that. That's not in the Bible. That's not what God's Word said. Why didn't you say this? Why weren't you clear that was muddled? And I think this generation, in fact, whatever we hear from spoke, so-called spokesmen, every generation needs to reaffirm and reinfuse courage amongst themselves. Yes, I still believe the Bible is the Word of God. Every word of it. And it needs to be publicly affirmed and preached in our day. I believe that. I still believe that. And there's an opportunity for us to encourage one another to sort of rally around the Bible. There's a lot of details we'll look at, but that's the centerpiece. Are you willing to rally around and encourage one another? I think our children need it, folks. And our children need mom and dad and church leaders to affirm the Bible is the inerrant, infallible authority, word of God, now and forever. And it should be spoken of, advocated publicly. So we're going to look 
at Paul handing the reins off to Timothy. Can I give you sort of a, I'll go first. I'm going to go first. I believe it. I believe every word in this book. I believe Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. You mean you still believe? Yes, I still believe the Bible. It is inerrant, infallible. It's the authority. The moral code of God is still the moral code of God. He loves people, but the thou shalts and thou shalt nots are still true. I believe it. I'll go first. Now look around. Look around. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The world needs this. They can't find hope from a church that's in the shadows and bashful. They need to see courage and love. Yes? Amen? This is the context. Now, I should have warned you. Sorry. It wasn't a trick. But Paul wants Timothy to go in with his eyes wide open. Now, Timothy knows. So now you know the Bible is what it is. This is for us. As we give a thumbs up, we need to go in with our eyes wide open. What's the environment that we're heading towards? Really, that we're in. Okay? What are we getting into? Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and let's start here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. This is going to characterize the society that we live in. They cannot make peace. Verse 3. Unloving means the breakdown of the family. The, the love that should be natural, it's a reference to family love. It's the breakdown of the family. Jesus said in the end times, children will turn against parents and parents will turn against children. Because the gospel will divide. Unloving, irreconcilable, verse 3, malicious gossips without self-control. The loss of all self-control. Brutal. Perfect word for this section. Haters of good. Now feel that. The hatred of good. Treacherous, verse 4. Reckless. And conceited will characterize the culture. Now watch this. This is important. Lovers of pleasure, when you'd think, let me translate a little bit, they'd be lovers of God primarily. That's a clue to what's happening here in these verses. Verse 5 still, same thing. Holding, you think, a holding to a form of godliness, you think one thing, although they've actually denied its power. Avoid such men as these. 
For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, or weak anyone, weighed down with various sins, various impulses. Verse 7, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Moses went through this, verse 8, So these men in your day also will oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, listen, rejected in regards to the faith, verse 9, but they will not make further progress. At some point, they will be, listen, unmasked. And their folly will be obvious to all, just like what happened with Moses. Can you identify with this? This cultural picture, this snapshot here, can you identify with it? Does that sound like we might be going through the radical degree of some of these things? These are really, the English translation here is very good. These are radical translations of radical Greek words here. Does this resonate? I mean, our society is so angry. I mentioned this last time I was here a couple times ago. Our society is mad. It's just angry. Irreconcilable. You just can't make peace. Due to vengeance. If you disagree, that I'm just going to pound you to a pulp. When we just simply disagree, civility is no longer in our vocabulary. The vengeance, the wrath, the the unforgiving spirit, the hatred of good. Okay? What I want you to understand is this is the culture. But what? look what verse 4 says. They're lovers of pleasure when you think they'd be lovers of God. Now, do we expect the culture to love God? Is that what we expect? Not before they get saved. Not before they come to Christ. What he's showing us here is that the culture is going to seep into the church. That's what he's saying here. This is a snapshot of the culture, but it's a snapshot of the culture invading or infecting the church. And it's very, the very reason, we'll get to this later, is because they won't affirm the Bible. They won't invest in the scriptures. Not only publicly believing, but actually digging in and making it part of their their DNA. And no wonder they have false teachers who have crept in, just like Moses experienced. They have a form of Christianity, but it's not real. That's what he's saying here. You'd think you're expecting to love God, but it's just not there. It's not in the heart. So when he says, chapter 3, verse 1, in the last days, difficult times are coming, he's talking about difficult times where the culture infects, worldliness infects the church. The lines get blurred between what is Christian and what is not. You see? So verse 1, in the last days, here's what you're getting into, Timothy. Here's what you're getting into, Sharon Church, as we give a thumbs up. In the last days, difficult times are going to set in. Now, the last days is a term you'll, if you read the Bible much at all and read prophecy in particular, that's a very specific term. The last day, the day, the terrible day of the Lord. It goes with all those terms that refer to prophetic history. What's going to happen in the future, in the return of Christ, as God wraps up what he's doing here right now. 
before the millennial kingdom. We don't have time to go in and prove all the point, but when you get into the New Testament, the last days, and the context of the, of the New Testament, particularly the epistles, is really squeezed down to meaning the church age. And if I could take the time, I could show that to you. It's the church age. It's the time between the first coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church before the great tribulation starts, you see. It's this whole period. It's not, here's the mistake, it's not just the, what's going to happen right before Jesus raptures us. It's not that, that little micro section of, of, of history. It's the whole time. And Paul, <laughs> preaching from prison, is, is, is living ex, uh, example of that. And Timothy has been through it with him as well. So what he's saying is, in this period of the church age, Difficult times are going to set in seasons. The word means seasons there. They're going to sort of creep in and, and evolve into a characterizing ugliness. And then they'll ebb a little bit and then they'll come back and it'll ebb a little bit and it'll come back. But look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Here's what that's going to look like. But evil men will proceed from bad to worse. It's going to get worse. These difficult times are going to evolve, materialize, and, and take root, and then they're going to ebb a little bit, and, and it may ease up somewhat, but then it's going to worse back, and it's going to be worse than before. And then it's going to ebb, and then it's going to come back and get, be worse than it was before, and it's going to intensify. There's this crescendo of these difficult seasons that come and go and they're going to get really bad and more bad and worse, excuse me, as they come, excuse me, as we get closer to Jesus coming. That's what he's saying. This is what you're getting into. It's going to slowly snowball and get worse. And he's giving us the extremes in this list right here. Difficult times are going to come. And he starts off with what? Men are going to be lovers of Self. I heard one pastor recently say, and, and, I, and I like it, I think it's a good rendering here, that this is the main sewer pipe that all these other descriptives come out of. Selfishness. Off the scale, ev increasing as time goes on, selfishness. Lovers of self. Sometimes it, were, it means to kiss. This word, lovers of self here. To kiss. To kiss yourself. People who uh, love themselves. And that's going to characterize in an intensing way, more intensifying way, as we go through our history in the church age. And it's in this climate that Paul is calling Timothy to affirm privately in your life and publicly as you preach, affirm you still believe the Bible is the Word of God. And you're still willing to talk about it in public. You see? That's the environment that, that we're getting into. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. Verse 11. Persecutions and suffering. Okay, there's a clue that Timothy may have matured. Okay? He's matured. He's much stronger now. He actually went through the sufferings with Paul. And he stops shying away. <laughs> Verse 12. 
But here's what he, wa- he wants us to understand. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, as we affirm the Bible, live the Bible, teach the Bible, and feast on the Bible to be made strong, as we preach it publicly, preach the gospel publicly as the Bible presents it, all who desire to live godly in this way will be persecuted. Timothy struggled. If I get persecuted, are we doing something wrong? We're supposed to be loving, but we truth in love. And it's the norm to get some version on the spectrum, some form of pressure, pushback, persecution, brutal responses. Okay? Ugly responses. Look at the list. You see? That's normal. That's the norm. Don't expect unbridled favor, unrelenting, you know, common favor. Don't expect that. Love people with the truth. And by the way, there's nothing loving about hiding the truth. Okay? There's nothing loving about hiding the truth. If you water down the gospel, it's not the gospel. You understand? So if someone embraces a watered-down gospel, that's not salvation. It's not the gospel if it's watered down. Truth and love. Truth and love. That's what we're supposed to do. So this is the environment that Paul wants Timothy. Paul could be encouraged. Just you. This is the environment in which we give a thumbs up. I still believe. So look at verse 14. And we're going to run through this fast. Here are three commands that Paul gives Timothy as he's signing off. As he's moving on. Paul does not speak anymore after this. Verse 14. You, however, you, in spite of what I just said, in spite of the intensity of the pushback, pressure, persecution, whatever it is, rejection, you, however, in contrast to the drift, in spite of the drift, okay, you continue. See that word? Continue. Continue affirming, believing, living by, living out, preaching publicly the Word of God, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, all of it. Okay? Continue. Don't move, remain. Be steadfast. Don't move from your position. Don't move from your public voice. Listen, at the time when, when society needs it most is when the radical decline takes place. That's when they need it most. With a smile on your face or intensity in your eye, love with truth. This is the only way. And I love you and I want you to embrace it. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And you're welcome. That is a sin, and if you'll repent, you're welcome. He'll take that away. Are you willing? He'll take it away. Come to Jesus Christ. What about that? Those are false ways. There's only one way. The cross of Christ. You see? Love with truth. Love with truth. Continue. I was driving through my hometown one day, and uh, with preacher sickness that I have, you sometimes see sermon illustrations and metaphors, things that you can think, you know what, that'll go good to that verse. That, you know, we just can't help it. And so I was driving down the road in my hometown, 
And I was admiring the, the, the new modern buildings at that time and that Jacksonville was creating and, and building. And, and, and our skyline was changing. And it was really cool. I, by the way, I love Atlanta. I've been here 10 years, I don't know, 12 years, something like that. And, um, and the buildings in downtown Atlanta are really cool. I'll, there's so much variety, strange buildings, but I love it. It's very, very interesting. But as I was driving through town that day in my hometown, I was looking at these buildings and admiring them, but I noticed that sandwiched in between, there's three or four at that time, churches in downtown Jacksonville that were still very cathedral looking. They were 100 years old, you know. Sandwiched between these modern buildings. And it just struck me, the metaphor there, Nod your head if you're getting what I'm at. You understand what I'm getting at. They were remaining the same. Doesn't mean you can't build a modern building. That's not what I'm trying to say, but their beliefs. It was a picture of a church, you know, in my head. What a metaphor of the church remaining committed to the truth. To the truth in spite of the changes. Enjoying the changes. But the truth remains and remains crystal clear in how we present it. That's what he's trying to say here, Timothy. In spite of this culture and these the, the last days, difficult times. Kind of underline what that word difficult. Let me jump back to verse 1. It's kind of a muted word. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, do you remember the story of the Gadarean demoniac? How many remember the story, what we call the Gadarean demoniac? Remember the wild man that was running around without any clothes on and, and living in the tombs? And he was, a, he was a serial killer. He was a murderer. And if he wandered too close, he would attack you. He was very like, much like an animal. What Matthew reveals, and I missed this for a long time, not until I was an adult, that Matthew reveals that there were actually not one, but two of them running around murdering people in that area there were two out of their mind we learned that they were oppressed by thousands of demons they were demon possessed as we like to say they would actually try to tie them down with chains and they would just pull the chain break metal chains and and people were afraid and they just let them be they didn't know what to do with them and Jesus meets them him one of the gospels just mentions one of them and he has a beautiful, there's a beautiful story of him being saved. And they find him clothed and in his right mind, listening intently to what Jesus was teaching. And they wanted to follow him. They wanted to go, they wanted to be a disciple, an apostle right then. And, and it's just a fantastic story. But the word there that, that, that Matthew uses to describe these two men before they got saved was the word Violent. And as he paints the story, you understand what the intensity of what he really means, violent. That's the word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Difficult, no, violent, savage days are going to come. And we need our strength. And we need our brotherhood, as we say, for strength and encouragement. So verse 14, you continue... In the things that, what, what do you continue in? The things you have learned and become convinced of. He's talking about affirming biblical truths, the Word of God. 
knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from, verse 15, from childhood. Stop and say, folks, <coughs> the most powerful strategy for building strong churches is building strong children. And to be bold about the truths we're willing to teach them, don't wait. Give the children the bold truths. They're better at apprehending or affirming that and grappling with that sometimes than adults are, better than they are. There's a trust there. There's an openness. There's... Paul found Timothy ready to be mentored because of what his mother and grandmother had invested in him already for a decade, 15, 20 years old when he found him. Already pretty solid because he had learned things from childhood. You see? Don't let go. He says, you continue in the faith. And publicly affirming that faith is what he's saying. Now, woven into this is the why. Why can we be so strong and confident to remain committed to believing and living by and preaching the Bible? Why? Where's the why here? It's woven right in here. What does he say in verse 15? From childhood you have known the what? What is it? Sacred writings. What kind of writings? Sacred. What does he mean by that? It's from God. This is no different than what Moses came down from Mount Sinai with, tucked up under his arm, that had been etched by the finger of God. It's the same thing, folks. It's the same. You can believe it and affirm it because the Creator has written that book in your lap. The why here to continue is because it's sacred. How do I know it's sacred? Look at verse 16. All of it is inspired. Now, you know this verse very well. It's God-breathed. God-breathed. If you put your, finger, your hand in front of your mouth while you talk, you can feel your breath. That's the picture that, that the, the writer is trying to, to, to convey here. It's the breath of God. They could feel the breath, as it were, of God as if he inspired it into their heads, the writers of the Bible. It, they could feel the breath of God. It came right out of God's mouth. The source of the Bible, this book, this timeless book, is God. That's why we affirm it. Boldly affirm it. Unashamed. Not, but you still believe? Yes, I still believe that. I do. Because it's sacred. It's inspired by God. I know it comes from God because chapter 4, verse 1, look at that. It comes with a solemn charge. Verse 2, to preach it. No matter what, in season and out of season. You see that? It's a solemn charge. What makes it solemn? Look at verse 1. In the presence of who? Who's watching and listening when you're, when you're preaching, Timothy? Sunday school teacher. Who do you stand accountable to when people gather and expecting, as God designed the church, expecting everything to be about centered on that book? Who's watching? What does he say? In the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge in the end times. 
the judge of the universe, the Father God, two members of the Trinity. He doesn't mention the Spirit because the Spirit's the author of the Bible. In the presence of God. That's why I know it's, it's sacred. That's why we don't move from it. I'm on God's side, folks. I don't care what the price. I'm on God's side. I don't doubt. Not one degree. Any verse that's in the Bible. Not one. It's still true. And that will continue. Timothy is called, you are called to continue in this that you learned from the beginning. You see? Now this makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's the eternal word of God. I want to underline some things so you really got this good. In uh, Psalm 119 verse 89, do we have that? There it is. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You see that? The teachings of the Bible are forever. Okay? Remind yourself of that today. Your faithfulness, now that's a synonym for the Bible. In Psalm 19, there are multiple synonyms that don't sound like they're referring to the Bible, but they are. That chapter is all about the Bible teaching about itself. Your faithfulness, or the Bible, continues throughout all generations. Continues. It's applicable. It's still in play. It still matters. It's still the truth, you see? You establish the earth and it stands. Just like when you created, you spoke, and creation came about through God speaking, and it's still here with us. Same thing with Scripture. It came from the mouth of God. Verse 142 at the bottom. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Again, a synonym for the Bible. The Bible is everlasting righteousness. Your law is truth. 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Look at verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old, even before David, of old I have known your testimonies, and here's what I've always known about them, that you have founded them forever. You see? How many times have you heard someone speak for God or about the truth of God or a moral code of God or the gospel itself and say, times have changed, so therefore we have to change. Not according to that. They have been founded forever. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous commandments is everlasting. You see that? The Bible, the, let's just, the moral code, the commandments of God, just the commandments. They're always God's commandments. They're always, he's an eternal God. He's always been who he is right now. Therefore, his standards do not change. You see? Be firm. Be strong. Matthew 5, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. 2 Thessalonians. So then, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Talking about scripture. That you were taught. And then 1 John. 1 John, the context there is he's trying to help his church identify who's real and who's not. That's what 1 John is doing. John is doing in 1 John. Who's really saved? He's dealing with 
with the world coming in, people coming in who pretend to be Christian and are not, false teaching, all kinds of errors flying around. So John has to write this letter to deal with that. And he's giving evidences of what's a real Christian. So there you go, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Talk about your doctrine. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also are saved. You're really a Christian. You will abide in the Son and the Father. You're one of His. They're dealing with stuff like denying Jesus actually came in the flesh. He was just a ghost. Or that the, this Jew, when he was baptized, got the, the, the Christ in him, got on a cross, and, and the Christ was in him. But when he died on the cross, the Christ left him, and, that, and the Jewish man named Jesus just died, just gobbledygook like that, denying his deity and, and, and his humanity, and just all kinds of confusing things were flying around. That pen, he writes that. Let that abide in you which Jesus taught us, that we learned at Pentecost, that the apostles have been teaching. He's one of them. He's the last one. It's still, truth is still truth forever. You see? It just makes sense, verse 14 here, that we continue, that we don't move. You see? Here's the why. Here's another why. It's powerful. Look at verse 15. From childhood you have known the sacred writings, now look, which are able to make you wise in salvation. Why would we back off from the very powerful truths that draw people to salvation? We can't fulfill the Great Commission if we don't give the truth. That's why we still hold to it. It's powerful. It leads people to salvation. Look what Paul says in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is he not ashamed? Because it works. Listen, I believe because God just said it. But my second reason is because it's the power of God. It works. When the gospel is preached, people get saved. When the gospel is diluted and turned into something else and some sort of welcome speech and it's not the gospel and they affirm that, they're not getting saved because they're affirming, agreeing to something that's not in the contract. It's not even true. It's not the gospel. If you change it, it's not the gospel. If you leave something out, it's not the gospel. This is why we continue. Here's the why. It's the power of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I love this verse. For this reason, we constantly thank God. Remember the church that encouraged Paul. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now watch, it's powerful. Which performs its work in you. Nothing else but truth performs. You see? That's why we continue. It performs. Lives are changed. Christians are changed into mature people. Unbelievers are changed into new believers. It performs. You know this verse, famous one. We teach our kids, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's powerful. That's why we remain committed to it. There's the power to save. Did I give you Acts 2.13? Excuse me, 2.37? There it is on the bottom. 
Now, when they heard this, Peter's preaching the gospel, and here's how salvation happens. If the gospel, if the truth is preached, then the Holy Spirit is let loosed. He's loosed because they're embracing truth, and he gets involved in the embrace and in the change. Watch. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And, the rest of the, and they said to the rest of the apostles and Peter, what do we got to do? They heard the truth and said, what do we got to do to be saved? What do we got to do? He's talking to Cornelius in Acts 10, 44, and he's not even finished. He's got a cool sermon all prepared, and he, he wasn't even done. The guy's saying, would you quit talking? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to be saved. While he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to the message, and they were radically saved. Why do we continue? Because it's powerful. Don't you want to see lives changed? I know you do. Don't you want that person that you work with, you go to school with, you play ball with, don't you want them to know Christ? Wouldn't it be awesome if they, if they know Christ? And to be rescued from their hopelessness? Don't you want to see them forgiven? Sure you do. Then we remain. We remain, no matter what the price. No matter what the price. That's why we continue because it's inspired by God it's sacred and it's powerful let me quickly wrap it up here verse 16 says all scriptures inspired by God it's powerful this way it's profitable for teaching for reproof and correction it, it, it points out my sin when I'm reading it sometimes or a verse pops in my head and says Scott you can't do that you need to repent you need to make that right that's what the Holy Spirit does when I'm engaged with Scripture on a daily basis. Scripture's inspired by God and profitable. It's powerful. That's why we continue. It, it, it trains us, look at verse 16, in righteousness. It trains us to produce righteous people. Okay? It's like being trained to be an athlete. Okay? Or a musician. You, there's a training process. There's work and, and honing and carving and, 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 and mentoring going on to see you produce a goal in mind, with the goal in mind. That's what he's saying here. The scripture will train you to become righteous. You see? And here's, listen, here's why Paul wanted Timothy to be dedicated. Here's why he wants Sharon Church to be dedicated to, to scripture and publicly affirm it and, and, and regularly, consistently study it and break it open and hash it and do the work of study and teaching. The very reason the church gets so ugly in difficult times is because they've abandoned Scripture and no training in righteousness is going on. No reproof and correction is going on. No teaching. You see? That's why we got it. We don't want to look like that, do we? Sharon, do you want to look like that? Do you want to be a church that's infected by the world? That becomes so weak? No, you don't. You want to be powerful witness in this community. Then continue in the things that you have learned because they're sacred, they're powerful. Let me just run and finish because we're out of time. Just follow me as I read. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, you're accountable to Christ Jesus, who is the judge. Preach the word. What do we preach? The word. I don't know what to talk about. The Word. What are y'all talking about, Sonny? The Word. 
What do we talk about next? The Word. What, what, what am I supposed to do as a pastor? The Word. That's it. The ministry of the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. For the time's going to come, verse 3. We already talked about this at the beginning of the chapter. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their, their ears from the truth and will turn aside little myths. Third command. Second command is preach the word. First one is you continue. The last one is be sober. It's sort of a summary command. Stay firm. Sober is kind of muted and a little bit vanilla. Okay? He's talking about muscling up. He's talking about radical resolve. Think of the pressures that we described already. <laughs> There's persecutions coming. You have got to muscle up. You've got to be a man about this, Timothy, and stay on course. <coughs> Excuse me. What do you mean? Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelism with the true unwatered-down gospel. Fulfill. This is how you fulfill your ministry. You know what that means? Here's, this is how you take the reins from me. Sharon Church, this is how you take the reins in this generation as this generation's representative church in this community. If you don't, there's a hole. This is your responsibility, this community. The reins have been handed to you. Will you fulfill your ministry? Will you continue in the things you have learned? Will you preach the word in season and out of season? Will you be self-controlled and resolved? Be self-controlled. That's Paul's example. Verse 7 and verse 8 says there's a crown for those who do this. We're done, but I want to wrap up in Philippians chapter 2. I don't know if I gave that verse, but Philippians chapter 2. There it is. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. This church is having trouble because they're fussing and fighting about stuff. Petty fighting about stuff. And it's gotten so bad and so ugly and so embarrassing that Paul's got to deal with it in, chapter, in Philippians chapter 2. So verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove. Why? Because you're supposed to be demonstrating yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. <laughs> That's a big mantle. We're supposed to be demonstrating in this community that we are blameless, innocent children of God above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, people without Christ, among whom you appear or you're supposed to appear as lights in the world. And what does he characterize? The light of the world, capital L, in the next verse. What characterizes the light of the world, the people of God? Holding fast, the people who hold fast the word of life. That's who we're supposed to be. We are supposed to, listen, we are supposed to be people of the book. We're people of the book. The word of God. The reins have been handed. Are you in? 
Look around. Do you need some encouragement going into the world in the next five minutes? Tomorrow morning? Back in school? Look around. Be encouraged. For now we really live if we're all standing firm in the Lord and believing the Bible personally and publicly. Let's pray.